0: Hello everyone, it's Chris Bercher with Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 39, The Growth Fallacy. Don't forget, if you can, if you like what I'm doing, make it through a whole episode. Uh, don't forget to share this with your friends. It's the only way anybody's going to know about it. I'd really like to get this stuff in front of people who are interested in listening to this and hopefully uh, sharing in the experience by commenting or giving me feedback. And uh, my ideas are evolving. I'm just capturing these moments in time as a, a representative of the evolution of thinking about topics that I think are relevant to everybody. So, the growth fallacy, today's episode. Now look, so I, I own a small business, and um, I live in a capitalist nation, in the United States. I have a family budget, I understand economics, and I've always felt a frustration with the mantra that we get from economics that says, if you're not growing, you're dying. Generally, this applies to business and businesses always have to be making more money in order to stay in business. And so the assumption is if there is no asymptote, you know, there's always this pathway toward more. And that's just, you know, even saying that in that context makes it sound pretty silly. And then, so I have a, I have a sort of an, a problem with the idea that economies must grow or budgets must grow and you always always have to have more money in order to stay in business. i get to that. And another element that I want to talk about is, with relevance to growth, is the concept of carrying capacity. So if you remember, I'm an ecologist, or I was an ecologist. I have extensive training on the field of ecology and and the concept of carrying capacity basically says that any population of organisms, so a group of species of the same species of animals living in the same area, will have some constraints based on geography, but more so based on the resources that they need and their availability. So, Serengeti grazing, or um, (laughs) gazelles grazing on the Serengeti Plains, they're going to reproduce and make more gazelles and they're going to eat more grass and for as one part of the equation that grass the amount of grass growing in that area is defined by the ecotone of the, the range of that grass and any sort of impenetrable barriers be they miles and miles with no grass or you know some some constraints to where that population is going to roam with respect to grass availability anyway the grass is going to be a limiting factor. Places to sleep are going to be a limiting factor. Mates to reproduce with are going to be a limiting factor. And all of these resource factors cobbled together will essentially define how big that population can get. And this is how it was before the Industrial Revolution uh, and, and maybe some more minor human advancements prior to that, that any population of animals living in any area, will only get to be so numerous based on these factors, and once those factors become more and more limiting, the population levels will decline, and so you you see various rates of increase, you know, so say there was an island somewhere and there were no birds on it, and a couple of birds made it there and laid some eggs and started making more birds, you can actually predict, based on knowledge of the ecology of the organism, How many of those organisms can occupy that space for any given time before some of them will have to leave? Uh, And that you also account for new ones coming in. But but anyway, this is the concept of carrying capacity, that there are constraints and there is an upward limit to which populations can grow. Now they can leave, they can go to the west, they can find new populations, but in a given space, there's only so many. So let's, let's extrapolate that to the earth. The earth only has so much space. That's limited. It only has so much oxygen, that's limited. There's only so much carbon, that's limited. There's all, There are constraints to the rates at which carbon can be recycled from inorganic to organic sources that are possible for humans. There's only so much food that will grow on the planet. There's only so many cows you can grow per area of land. There's only so much corn. You could apply that model to the entire Earth if you could convert the entire surface of the Earth, including potentially marine farms and uh, whatever else you could imagine, you're gonna come up with a maximum amount of carbon food units, and you could determine how many people that that could serve. And I would argue that we've probably made it past that as far as human populations go, or at least we have passed the threshold beyond which that becomes a problem. So what happens when resources become limiting? There starts to be competition and inequality, right? Which is kind of what we have where if there's only six ducks in a pond and all those ducks eat worms out of the bottom of the pond, there's probably plenty of worms for those ducks to eat and they can all peacefully coexist. Now maybe those ducks reproduce and the population grows to be a hundred. Then let's for say for some reason, they can't leave the pond because there's no other water anywhere nearby. And there gets to be a hundred ducks on that pond. Now maybe there's not enough worms to go around and now the ducks are gonna start <coughs> Uh, behaving differently because they're now having to compete for these limited resources. And maybe that means some of these ducks get more creative. Maybe some of these ducks get more aggressive. Maybe some of the ducks die. And what happens is that will sort of manage that population down to some level. They'll knock the worms back. There won't be enough worms. Some ducks will die. They'll starve. And then the worms will start to grow. and, and, and and, And so it goes. And so the carrying capacity line sort of wavers like this as the resources ebb and tide based on the practice of uh, of whatever feeding or reproduction or whatever it is. And you can you can break these things down and it is pretty finite what kind of resources do animals need. But when competition ensues, that changes things. Before competition ensues, when you're below the threshold of resource limitation, everybody's happy. It's fine. And then of course this complicates things because different populations of different species in a community will be competing for the same resources with different Degrees of need, and so that's an element of ecology, population and community ecology that you know that focuses on studying these things, and we can actually predict them. And this is how we manage endangered species. It's how we manage herds on fields. You can only put so many cows on a field because there's only so much grass, right? And either they'll suffer from malnutrition, or they won't get big enough, or whatever. These things happen. And so, again, just for the sake of argument, I would say somewhere in the past. Uh, our technology as humans as has sort of given us an artificial ability to manipulate carrying capacity. We don't, I, you know, I don't even know. I'm sure people have done this work to sort of get at the carrying capacity of the planet for human population based on all these averages of carbon consumption and oxygen and waste products and, and, and other things. And you could bake that up. You could do, some, do that simple math. But... With things like medicine, which increase our lifespan beyond sort of the natural condition. If we live to be 90 and 100, that means there's going to be more and more people on the planet. Anyway, we've jacked up the rate. Our reproductive rates are higher. Um, Our mortality is longer in general. There's more and more and more and more people on the planet. So certainly we are, and, and we're seeing results of that. We're seeing bleaching in the coral reefs. We're seeing higher CO2 levels and higher temperatures in the atmosphere modifications uh as a result of this but that's not really my point my point is that let's apply that grow or die model to different things and see how well it holds up or is it does it does it seem to be true are there is there evidence for this uh beyond sort of the adam smith back of the envelope capitalist economic calculations that we've done or is there in fact evidence against this And what sort of things grow? uh, What are different ways something can grow? And what are we really talking about? And and where might this hold? And where might this not hold? And is this actually the truth? I will argue that the grow or die mantra is is a fallacy. It only applies to certain things. And I can split it sort of at the beginning into um, space and time. So anything that's going to grow and occupy more and more space Space is generally a limiting factor. If you're on an island, there's only so much land. Uh, If you're in the ocean, even, it's a limited amount of space. If you're on a planet, there's only so much space. One could argue that if the universe is infinite, then space isn't a limiting factor at the universal level, but nothing that I can think of, (laughs) you know, I guess if humans were to move into space and all that stuff, that, that whole problem changes. But in general, we're talking about things that are limited by space, and I would say if space is a limiting factor, then you, then the growth of grow or die model is stupid because what's going to happen is there's only going to be one thing left. If everything that occupies a certain space, let's say every animal plant on the planet Earth, can grow infinitely, then one thing is going to win. And then that one thing is going to reach the carrying capacity of the planet. And, and then it's it's going to start to... You know, manage that level, and sure, okay, you win. You know, you're the thing that now occupies the planet all by yourself. But if you believe in interconnectedness and ecosystem function, then you realize that one animal, one plant can't solely occupy the planet. A homogenous, uni-species world probably wouldn't work because of all of the cooperative things, different ways of processing carbon, Plants produce oxygen, animals consume oxygen. That whole thing would be impossible. So it's not even funny. Um, And now with respect to uh, economics, money, cash money, arguably doesn't take up any more space, especially now that it's sort of all in banks and it's all fake money anyway. It's just a number on an account. And uh, that's, you know, there's, we don't have, Physical piles of money everywhere, you know, there seems like there's there's more money in existence There's less money actual paper money in existence than there are numbers in people's bank accounts, right? So we figured out a way around that So theoretically you could have more and more money but what happens then you get Jeff Bezos who I read yesterday makes something like a four and a half million dollars an hour (laughs) uh so that's crazy and then most people on planet earth will never have four and a half million dollars over their course of their entire lifetime you know you get this this income inequality right which i'm not so sure that's a wonderful thing it seems like in the animal world um what would happen is all of the The animals that have the lowest amount of a resource will just start to die off. They get diseased. They wouldn't be able to compete. They wouldn't be able to do all things they need to do. And so if the growth mantra applies to money, it seems like, sure, you can get as much as you want, but at some point there's going to be fewer and fewer people hoarding all of the money, even if you let it be infinite. But we know... With general economic theory, money can't be infinite because then it loses its value, so nobody would hoard it. <laughs> so that, if you if you finish this growth thing out to its obvious endpoint, it doesn't seem to hold up. So theoretically, you could hoard all the money in the world, but also theoretically, that probably would inhibit itself. Um, as people would start to not be able to exist. And I again would argue on planet Earth, we're already there. And a different thing about post-industrial revolution or maybe post-agricultural revolution is that humans now can artificially control the carrying capacity by changing things like um, uh, uh, heating and air conditioning. Now we can live further north and further south, or closer to the equator, where maybe we couldn't live before. So now we can occupy more and more spaces, but not without some artificial help. We're not going to be living on Antarctica without some serious heat, <laughs> uh, because we have to alter the natural climate to suit ourselves. Same thing goes for food. You know, if you're going to live in Antarctica, you're not going to grow your own food, so you've got to have some sort of way to move it in and out. And once you figure out all these different places that you can live and you add in all the logistical mechanistic resource allocation mechanisms but between burning fossil fuels and the time required to travel and the extra costs and all these things it becomes less and less and less and less efficient and so at some point if you ride the lower efficiency higher expense train out it's just going to become impractical to um, occupy, to, to artificially modify spaces on the planet for us to live. And the second resource, along with space, then, is time. So we all have a limited amount of time, and you can't actually hoard time, I don't think, uh, I guess. And, and, in, and, in, and in essence, we spend time, and so there's a, there's a choice about how we want to spend that time. But you're certainly not going to grow it any. So it's under a different set of constraints. But one place I was thinking about this maybe is relevant to the time thing is, you know, I say at the beginning of the episode, the growth fallacy, uh, indicating my belief that growth is generally bad or that these models that suggest that growth is critical I disagree with but at one place I can think of where we want to grow it's personal growth you wouldn't be watching this podcast if you weren't in some way interested in educating your mind but that doesn't take up any more space right that's that's growth in sort of a metaphysical or metaphorical sense but one could argue that that falls under the umbrella of time temporal growth because as time passes you're growing but not in size in um, in sort of Intelligence or memory or knowledge or um, information or the ability to process that information. Another thing is getting better at playing music. Nothing needs to change with respect to space or matter or physicality of planet for someone to enhance a skill in music. So to me that doesn't I can't think of any reasons why growth, personal growth, growth in a talent like music inhibits in any other way any other resources it doesn't require it doesn't take anything in now in order to grow financially you have to spend other resources and take in other resources to convert those things to cash that's just the way business works that's the way capital works it doesn't um even 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 with respect to like compound interest in a bank something is going on that money is being spent on goods and services that take up space uh, in order to generate new revenue. Money just doesn't, it's not like photosynthesis. It's not it's not chemoautotrophic. Money doesn't make more of itself. Uh, and even if it did, if, it, if you do believe money takes up space to some degree, then it would just take up more and more space. If that digital, you know, if I could put a dollar in the bank and it, it all it is is a, a one in my computer... And I'd go the next day and it's two and the next day it's three. I mean, that's fantastic, but I don't, I don't think that would work. Again, that's not how money works because if money becomes valueless, then it becomes worthless and then nobody would want it anyway. But going back to that, 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 that mantra of business, you know, what I noticed as a business owner is, one, sort of I'll summarize this story with saying there's no middle class. So you could be a small business and you could grow up to a certain point where you can basically fairly easily meet your local demand of foot traffic to coming into your brick and mortar store, or the number of uh, people organically on the internet who will subscribe to your 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 self help um, video series or, or whatever it is, without spending a whole lot of money. You can generate a background revenue based on just sort of um, the the lowest hanging fruit or whatever without putting any resources into any marketing, solicitation, um, advertising to generate that, you'll get X. You'll get X business. Now, some small businesses, like say a, a, a pizza restaurant, they're gonna open up on the corner of downtown, enough people are gonna walk in, they're gonna buy pizza. No matter what you do, that will happen. Now, the question is, is the revenue that that brings in enough to support the cost of the business, the cost of the goods sold, the rent, the utilities, the salaries to the workers, the hourly wages, and then some sort of cash money for the ownership that makes it worth it. In many cases, yes. That's how small businesses survive. They're not going to spend money to advertise to people two towns away to drive over and have your pizza because it's probably not going to give you a return on the investment. The money that you spend Attracting new people to your restaurant probably isn't going to result in uh, in revenues that are higher than what you spent because there's three pizza places in that town. People aren't going to travel around. That you know, some people will, but with any meaningful numbers to alter your business model. Now, if you so so, now let's take Little Caesars. Uh, obviously, Little Caesars has said. We want to put one of these in every city in America, in every town in America, maybe two or three of them, because that's worth it to us. But they've got to spend a crap ton of money to do that. Now, maybe they do two or three at first. Maybe they do four or five. But my idea with there's no middle class, you don't see anybody in the middle class of, say, pizza restaurants. Say they have 10 or 15 restaurants scattered around some part of a state. Generally speaking, what you're seeing is a snapshot of time. They're growing to try to become Little Caesars. There's a line in the middle of of small business and big business. It's not a line. It's a a pretty broad space between just bigger than mom-and-pop local pizza place and just smaller than Little Caesars. That enormously huge space continuum of, of... you know, space between number of restaurants, dollars generated per year, number of sales, ingredients used, all of those things, properties owned, is, is huge. Orders of magnitude, you know, so let's say a little pizza place might do $100,000 a year, and that's enough money to run the place and pay everybody, and you're good. Little Caesars might do a million dollars per year. So you've got, what, you know, two orders of magnitude, 100000 an order of magnitude in between there, and that's probably... Conservative and under, you know, it's probably more like $10,000 and several million dollars um, or hundreds of millions of dollars between there. For example, the small brewing business. Why do you, why would all of a sudden were there 8,000 small breweries? Because they were all small. Because the model in that business was giant corporations. Giant corporations, fewer than 75 existed prior to 1980. And the 2000s, there was this huge boom where the number of breweries went from a couple, from a thousand almost a whole order of magnitude, almost to 10,000 over just a couple of years. Why? Because they were all tiny because they could easily take a point zero 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 one percent market share from their local big brewer, you know, beer sales into their individual market and do fine and actually do pretty well. And everybody did pretty good. But what happened? Well, four more opened down the street. Um, the big guys started buying out the bigger uh, small craft breweries and the, the cost, well, and then the little tiny breweries that wanted to grow more realized that in order to grow from a small local mom-and-pop shop to the next step was going to take a huge input of cash. And a lot of them tried to do this, and most of them failed. Because what happens is if you want to move through that giant middle ground area, you have to put in a ton of money. You know, Maybe it costs $50,000 to open up a small business that'll generate $100,000 to $150,000 a year. That's not bad. Now, to go from that hundred to $150,000 a year to a million dollars a year, you've got to open up 10 of those places. So that's $500,000. You've got to put that money in, and then you're probably going to have to do a little bit more because now you're getting into new markets and you've got to do new research, and one person can't do it by themselves. So now the CEO's got to hire a whole bunch of officers and managers to run these different places. So the, the expenses go up uh, disproportionately to the number of restaurants. So to, you know, for every new franchise or sec- separate business that you open up is going to cost a little bit more than the first one you did. Um, and So your profit margins get less and less. Anyway, you have to put in a ton of cash, and it's going to be a long time before you see the return on that investment. So either you have a whole bunch of sweet angel investors or you know, a source of capital from somewhere, besides like a bank loan, real, real money. And you've got very patient people who are willing to, um, wait a long time for that return and just really believe in you because you're an excellent salesman or whatever it is, salesperson. Um, that's the model. So you've got to get a whole bunch of people. And then you're going to, it's going to cost you more because of the rates at which you're borrowing that money are crappy. You know, that's probably not the 10,000 you have saved up and the 50,000 you borrow from your parents or whatever. This is, this is real. And then at the end of all that, so you start making money. Well, you got to pay all those guys back first, before, and so a lot, that's where a lot of people fail. And what is that? It's growth. Why did they try in the first place? Why weren't they good with hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? Why did they want more than that? Because it looks simple, I guess. Because it sounds like basic math. You know, if I had fifty thousand dollars left over at the end of the year running this business, and I had ten more of these, I'll have half a million dollars left over at the end of the year. Let's let's push for that. But that's where. That's why, to me, it's amazing that really big businesses exist. So what you're seeing in the landscape is either a mom and pop, either a giant business, or somebody who's trying to shift from the mom and pop to the giant business. Because I'm not so sure there are too many places in that middle ground. Well, the problem is the growth fallacy. You get in that middle ground and maybe you start five mom and pop restaurants and you're like, now I'm making $300,000 a year. This is better than the $50,000 that I was bringing in before. Why can't people stop? There's something about the growth fallacy that is dopamine or some sort of addiction or gluttony, except for the mom and pops. That I see out there. Once you pass the threshold. Where you have committed to growth. I don't see a lot of people. Businesses. Ideas. That are good at stopping. It's just like you don't see a whole lot of smokers. That have one or two cigarettes a week. They're there. I, you know, I know them. I've met them. Um, certainly some people just don't get. Uh, physiologically addicted. But you know what I mean. There's something about the growing. The growing. That takes over. And I think it's related to addiction. It's, it's just like, you know, you can't, you know, if you start gambling or whatever that gives you the dopamine hit. And I, and I don't know that with business and money and capitalism that it's dopamine. Maybe it's the money itself or maybe it's the satisfaction. I don't know. But it's a thing. Look around you. You know, it seems like more is better seems to be the mantra with respect to business and money and economies. And what I, so when I was, when I owned a business, I thought, you know, we were, we made pretty good money for a few years before too many breweries were out there. We were ahead of the game. We were, so people within 50 miles were coming to my former brewery to spend their money there because there were no other choices. And so we had a much broader an artificial base because the competition just hadn't risen to normal levels yet. It was an absurdly, you know, new markets are great. Uh, and really what you want to do is get in and get out before they start to get saturated. And so you can actually, you could actually see our, our revenues change as new breweries opened. But what we did was we took that money when we were flush and we put it back into the business. Why? to try to get bigger because that's what we thought we were supposed to do and I don't know if I really thought that I know I read that or learned that in basic economics but one of my partners had an MBA like he had a two-year business degree um, and he firmly believed what he was taught that you got to you got to get bigger and on paper it makes sense if you can sell two beers for eight bucks well, I can sell two million beers for two million bucks. <laughs> that sounds a lot better. But what you don't understand is that th- there's an economic term for this. For every opportunity cost, I guess, for every increased unit you sell, it costs you more to do that. Which doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense, does it? Because it, because of economies of scale, you think your cost of ingredients, your access to, you know, uh, utilities, whatever. Some of these things, the bigger you are, you actually get price breaks. You know, if I'm ordering bags of barley or pizza dough, you know, if I'm willing to order fifty thousand pounds of it, I'm going to get it per pound. It's going to cost me less. So you think this is good, but you, there's so many other costs, and then something about it's kind of like. Sure, we can live in Alaska or we can live in Antarctica because of HVAC, but what's the cost of that? It costs a lot of money to move all that stuff down there, to set it up, to power it, to run it. There there is an environmental cost. There is the alteration of the landscape cost. there's, There's maybe the air is too dry and there's a health cost. There's all these other costs that we don't consider. And sure, You can do this, but what is the, you know, what is the profit margin, if you will, or the return on the investment? What is the value? And uh, beyond a certain point of growth, like the cost of living in a comfortable climate like Louisiana, I don't know, that's about Kansas, I don't know, Spain uh, versus living in Antarctica is, is going to be different. And then also the value of doing that is going to be different. Maybe to different people. I don't know. Maybe that's a really uh, bad analogy. But it certainly applied to beer because few, obviously fewer and fewer big breweries do well. Um, and more and more breweries fail that tried to be medium to large. In fact, in the last couple of years of doing business uh, in the brewing industry, what we saw is a lot of medium-sized you know, try people that were trying to occupy the middle class, either they would make it through and get big enough to realize these economies of scales and these and these you know brand loyalty and all these other things that 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 keep you selling at large volumes, but most of them didn't make it. And there was a lot of equipment that came on the market, or simply other people took them over. More, you know, more cash came in. And in the end, I got out kind of before I got to see this happen, but you wonder, just because any fool can spend money, so just because you keep throwing money at something and making it grow, doesn't mean it's healthy. Just because it's getting bigger or producing more units, taking up more space, it doesn't mean it's healthy. Because if you're putting more money into something or any kind of more resources into something, then you are getting equivalent resources out when your return on investment is bad. And I see that happening, right? I mean, of course, our return on investment for human population is we want to exist. We want to live. We don't want people to just die of disease constantly. And so it's, you know, any cost is worth putting in. So in that respect. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure we're proud of the number of people that are on the planet by any means, but we certainly don't want them all to die. And it's sort of like the horses out of the barn. We all have sex, and we're all going to make new people. And what do we have to do? It doesn't matter what we have to do to maintain that. And some places don't have the resources, and you have things like famine and and, and, and high instances of disease and and people with. um you know, no source of clean water. And it's all arguably because they have surpassed the carrying capacity uh, of whether, whether that's the literal carrying capacity of, like, you know, at one point we could all poop in the water and had the water carried it away. And essentially the global hydrologic cycle took care of all of our waste and the water was still clean. And everything was fine. But then there was too many people. And now the water coming from upstream has got somebody else's poop in it. it's got bacteria growing in that poop that's going to make you sick. Once we passed that, and then, and then of course, we figured out ways to treat that. And we put in wastewater treatment facilities. And we had healthy drinking water and clean water. And, and we kept the cholera and the other dysentery and the other fecal and illnesses <laughs> out of our drinking water. Um, so we, we learned, and, that, and that's great. You know, on the one hand, technology is awesome. And it enables to do all these other things. But don't ever forget that it's also, um, you know, a kickstand on the side of a failure. The reason we needed those technologies is because we got too big. So in the same breath that you say, Coal was an amazing industry because it generated so much revenue and made people wealthy. What's the kickstand on that? Well, have you driven through West Virginia and seen what mountaintop removal looks like? And I personally, uh, and this is more, well, this is environmental degradation. I have surveyed streams in West Virginia for weeks and never seen a single fish. Now, whether or not that's directly caused by the coal industry or not, I don't have proof or evidence of proof. I don't have didn't do that study, uh, but I'm sure it didn't help. So I don't mind the idea that growth is healthy. Certainly personal growth and spiritual growth and growing in your hobbies and your intelligence level, I mean, th- these are these are in a separate set because there are no resources used. At least there's no additional resources used. Your body's already alive. It doesn't take any more food, carbon to have thoughts than it does to simply exist. Um, and I haven't really thought all that through, but I'm, my point wasn't to talk about personal growth. I just want to make the point that some growth is okay. It's the growth that burns resources or takes up space. And so financially, sh- going back to the business growth thing, sure, nobody's going to argue that Amazon isn't the wonderful business because Jeff Bezos makes $4.5 million a minute. But I remember when Amazon first started and hearing all kinds of stories about how it didn't break even. And it was you know, in the r- red for so long, basically spending more money than it made. How many people can really afford to do that uh, those, those are really big risks and I, you know I, I guess presumably people deserve a really big payoff. and again, does Bezos's money take up does he have to keep it in a, in a box and space? I mean, does he have a bunch of those storage buildings in his backyard holding all this stuff that he had to cut down for no. It's, it's just a made up thing. It's just money. But the size of that business, and the infrastructure and the buildings and the HVAC and the fossil fuels burned and the lights and and the and the planes flying around and all that stuff, I'm not so sure are a good return on the investment. You know, and it's hard to do this kind of analysis, but if you could take the financial benefit I'm not talking about dollars in, in, in the bank, but kids put through college, food put on the table, families with uh, income to pursue life, liberty, and happiness um, based on gen- revenue generated from the Amazon business versus the actual sum of all of the resources that had to go into building that. And, you know, financial investments and all these other things. And, and if you could sort of spread, you know, lay that out so that you had a pros and cons that were complete, and then we'd be able to make a justification. And, and, and my real question is, and this applies to growth, is when is it enough? Is $4.5 million dollars a minute enough? Was $4 million a minute enough? Was $40 a minute enough? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then let's take the Amazon thing and the full cost of all the resources that I just mentioned and scale it back down to where everybody gets the same except Bezos gets $40 a minute instead of $4.5 million. And What does it look like? Again, if it's true that as a business or an entity or a um, whatever, something that takes up space and uses resources, population of gazelles grows, does it really require more and more resources as it reaches the capacity or the edges of that growth and, you know, once some threshold of size? It's true. And again, these aren't necessarily basic ledger QuickBooks numbers. It might not be the amount of money we spent on utilities. That might have actually gotten cheaper because now you bought a utility and you give yourself free electricity. So maybe you save a whole lot of money on that column. But all these more and more and more, you had to uh, cut down a forest and now there's lower co2 processing for the planet and the streams got messed up and the air quality got worse and the tribal cultures that had um historical artifacts there are sad i mean you have to really consider all of these things and the problem is we don't because it's hard it's hard to say well i don't care if we cut the trees down and i'm the one that wants the money and i'm giving people a good service and so we're done and i have the money to do it so we're done It's hard to consider all of the different stakeholders in any one of these decisions. But it isn't hard. If you could, it wouldn't be hard to convert their interests into dollars lost. You could convert all of these things. You could do the math. And my argument is that I fully believe, and if somebody paid me, I would gladly do this because I know it can be done and I'm pretty sure that I could do it myself for for X whatever example if I was given access to all the records that I would need access to. I could actually come up with values for these things. And I've I've done this job before, right? But in this case, in the, the job case, it was balancing trying to determine the value of endangered species versus the value of a business that needed to harm endangered species in order to get their business done. You know, I need to kill two storks a year uh, in order to make a million dollars. Well, nobody came in and, and, and valued it any of the effects of that business beyond two storks and so an idiot would come in and go well so each stork is worth half a million dollars what's that but that's not how it works there's so many other things to consider um and i don't want to go into that now because i'm not not sure it's worth it but my point is that the way we think about growth is wrong in so many different ways one Because there are alternatives to grow or die. You can take any business that's growing and cut it and say, no more. You've got all the, you're not gonna produce any more widgets, you are going to operate at this level from here on out. There are ways for that business to actually become more profitable. (laughs) One, they're not gonna stop, they're gonna stop, they don't have a growth budget anymore. Any money they were spending on getting bigger, they can now save, and sometimes, that's more money than they would actually bring in by growth. <laughs> so right there, a win. And I'm sure that, that would probably happen more than half of the time with any business of any size that's larger than mom and pop but smaller than Amazon. Then if you start to calculate and add in the value of all of the other effects the opportunity cost from that business using whatever resources to grow that somebody else could have had or that somebody else had value in or that actually equates to a loss to some other business or some other entity or some individual or the planet. And we don't do that. We just say we have to grow, period. And it's kind of like I used to say that you know I, I wish I was the primary breadwinner in the family because for some reason the person in a family with a job Gets a free pass for that job. It doesn't matter what's going on. That person has to go to work, period. They go to work. There's no argument. There's no thought that there's an option. Any of that stuff. And so if we looked at growth like that, if we looked at growth that there was no other option but to consider all of these different elements simultaneously, but we do the opposite of that. We actually give growth of the free pass and say, well, it's so Critical for all businesses to grow because everything's gonna die. I don't know what's the what's the what's the fear of the outcome of that? Just because it's something that we were told, it's classic critical thinking. It's just one of those things we never questioned. We just said, yeah, you gotta grow. You gotta grow to survive. That's it. Period. In every every aspect. And I'm just saying it's a fallacy. There may be times that it's true, but I would argue that more often than not, when you consider all of the different resources. Required for that growth and the potential return on that investment more than half the time, hell, I would say 70% of the time. It's just not going to hold up. But because we're not measuring those things, okay, number one, because we accept that paradigm to be true, it's a failure because we should always leave room for questioning it. Uh, and so and then second, we don't actually do the assessment. So it's a guaranteed win. It's sort of like saying um, you're never going to have a fever in your whole life and then getting rid of any thermometers or any other way of ever measuring that you have a fever or any sensation in your hands to feel that you're warm or any of that stuff. Sure, yeah, guaranteed. You're never going to have a fever because you have no way of knowing. And so if we don't measure... The effects of growth, then there's no ever, never going to be any evidence against it. And many people are doing this now. Do you think about the environmental realm? You think about coal. Was there an impact of coal? Well, hell yeah. Have you ever been to West Virginia? Poverty, which doesn't make any sense. Terrible health problems, including black lawn, uh, A a desecrated natural environment. I mean, yeah. We didn't, we didn't include those things as necessary components of the determination of whether or not growth in the coal industry was good. And then you intimately tie everything together. I mean, uh, as far as like the coal industry, the, the consumption of fossil fuels and all those other things, now we use those as excuses. Yes, we have to grow the coal industry because it keeps the lights on, is what we say around here. Well, you know what? There's a lot of things that keep the lights on, like freaking... Solar, wind, nuclear—that isn't coal. So what is There's a bigger premise there that I can't quite get my finger on. It's something to do with like voluntary ignorance. Um, and I think, well, I guess, what really gets me is that the higher ends—I'm, you know—I'm picking on large business. I'm picking on large corporations. But I do that because I think at that level. When you got guys in there that are, you know, smart enough to figure out whether or not, you know, a ten million dollar investment is going to generate ten million dollars and one cent, counting for inflation, and then determine that that's a good solid idea, there's some smart people, people who have like some intellectual growth in their lives. They're smart enough to know this, and so that's kind of my point. If you're sophisticated enough to have figured out how to burn coal and turn that into a billion dollar a year business or to build um, a house in Antarctica that's comfortable to live in and safe and sustainable, then you're smart enough to have realized there are other costs. You know, it's like the elephant in the room and nobody wants to talk about. Nobody in the coal industry wanted to be like, um, we're uh, destroying water quality you know you'd have been fired maybe there were people that did that Uh, it just it doesn't it doesn't go together it's almost as if the growth model requires you to ignore uh, a lot of important factors in order for it to work and so it doesn't work (laughs) you know it's like it's like the addict that says you know uh It's okay to steal from these people because I've got to have my heroin or I'm going to go through withdrawals. You know, you you make sense of it in your head and then you don't even think about it as a crime anymore. I think the growth model is so strong and it's got this, it's so enabled by all of the people who I, I would argue, many of which you have sort of selfish financial interests, they're all willing to ignore it. Everybody's willing to look away, including the consumers who are like, Yeah, I don't want to pay more than forty dollars a month in my utility bill. Make it happen. <laughs> I don't care what you do. And that's why I think it's growth is a fallacy. It's certainly not true that you in order to survive you have to grow. That's bullshit. And then secondarily, you know, that 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 growth doesn't have detrimental side effects is also bullshit. And I would just like to see a change in the awareness of that. And so, you know, when you see something that has achieved uh, an amazing size, think about what the true cost of that was. It, or even something that's in the middle. Or even a mom-and-pop, for that matter. I mean, if a mom-and-pop shop is, is is making business because they're not paying their, their staff anything, or if they're throwing their garbage in the ditch, okay, that's bad, too. And just being driven by that mantra that you have to grow, I think, fosters that sort of environment. It's like slavery. I want more money, uh, but labor costs too much maybe we can steal some humans and not pay them and make them do the labor, and then we'll have all that money. I mean, it's the same sort of evil, nefarious um, approach. And that's driven by the desire for growth, right? Now, everybody needs money. Everybody has to do certain things. I just think there should be contingencies upon upon these things. And where we see the most extreme abuse is at really high levels of growth? Big business, corporate America, government. All right. <laughs> Thank you for letting me get that out. There were several other points I think um, I wanted to make, but that's okay. I made the ones that I made. I would love to hear your feedback. Certainly, those of you who have studied economics and and, and maybe can explain the 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 philosophical and spiritual meaning behind the growth mantra. Um, I would love to ha- have that kind of conversation. And, and, and until then, um, I'm going to keep thinking how I'm thinking. And for those of you who this is new, I mean, look around you and think. Um, share your examples. Maybe there are examples out there where growth is a positive thing or that doesn't produce these sort of results. And maybe there's a way that we can continue to do this sustainably. Or maybe there's a utopian society where... All businesses are only so big and maybe there are magic thresholds and better rules and better regulations um, and reasons why we ought to encourage that rather than believing in the God of growth and uh, worshiping at the altar of too much. Anyway... Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. This is episode 39, The Growth Fallacy. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for uh, a series on curiosity coming up and uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks guys. Take it easy.